This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Hey, yo. Happy New Year. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. It's been over 11 months since the pandemic emerged to the United States. And things are worse than ever. Hospitals across the country have reached full capacity and are utilizing crisis standards of care. Guidelines use when there is a shortage of resources and care. Today's episode is about healthcare allocation in the time of COVID with Brittany Wilson, a civil rights attorney for the National Center for Law and Economic Justice. This center, along with three other disability rights organizations, filed a class action complaint in October 2020 against the state of New York. The lawsuit alleges discrimination in a current state plan that would ration ventilators and allow hospitals to reallocate ventilators for people who use them in the community. Brittany will talk about her role in the case and how the case came about, how these existing guidelines are ableist and harm disabled people, and the goals of the lawsuit. Please note we talked in November 2020, and I included a short update at the end of this episode. Are you ready? Away we go. So, Brittany, welcome to my podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Brittany, would you mind, I guess, introducing yourself and share a little bit about your background? Sure. My name is Brittany Wilson. I'm a civil rights attorney from Brooklyn, New York. I have cerebral palsy. Um, very proud of being a, a Black disabled civil rights attorney and advocate. And I'm currently a staff attorney at the National Center for Law and Economic Justice in New York. You know, I just want to take a moment and, you know, comment that, you know, here we are. You know, we're speaking today, November 13th, 2020, 10 days after the election day in the United States. Uh, how are you feeling with the results and the, you know, potential coup or obstruction by the uh, person currently occupying the White House? I think I'm I'm feeling tired. Um, just sort of the whole news cycle and the stress of it all has been, I think, all-consuming in a lot of ways. Um, both as an advocate, as a civil rights attorney, and as as a person, as a citizen, I'm I'm hoping that that Trump accepts his defeat and that we have a, a smooth transition of power. But I'm also, like everyone else, remaining vigilant. Um, so I feel relieved, but also I feel tired. I think that's the best way I can sum it up. Yeah, I agree, and I think. Well, I was super excited to see the voter turnout in such huge numbers, but the fact that this 
election was such a close election. Right. It was very disheartening that there was still almost, you know, half the country, half of the voters total, almost, you know, roughly, that's supported a fascist. I'm at the point, sadly, where it takes a lot to surprise me. So I think I definitely was saddened by that, but not surprised. But I'm glad that people turned out so that that wasn't the case, so that we don't have at least as much of a fight as we could have had, had the outcome been closer than that. I agree. I mean, it's just, it's a very sad indictment of our country of white supremacy. So, yeah, that to me is not surprising, but just the fact that one would think that after these four years, the deliberate harm is so apparent. It's just, yeah, I just don't get it. Yeah, I agree. into the coronavirus pandemic with these progressively to make it be worse just day by day. As someone who lives in New York City, you know, one of the hardest cities at the very beginning, what was it like for you as a New Yorker when, when it all started and, you know, where we are now? It was scary, to say the least. Um, I actually, I lost my aunt to COVID. My great aunt, she was um, actually in a in a nursing home. So she's one of the many um, nursing home residents who got COVID and passed away. Um, so that was difficult. Um, grieving during COVID has been difficult because you know none of the none of the rituals that we would usually follow. Um, you can participate in those. You know, as I mentioned, I'm disabled, so I've been pretty much um, in my house since March, trying everything I can to avoid COVID and, and the possibility of getting it in any way or coronavirus, hoping the same for my family and friends. Um, you know, I've worried about the people in my family who have been helping to take care of me and get me things that I need and stuff like that because they're at greater exposure and, and also risk for COVID um, as people of color, as people with underlying conditions. So while I try to take care of myself, I'm also I'm concerned about their well-being and thinking about what would happen if, God forbid, something were to happen to, to one of them or if I had to seek medical care because of all the, the things that we're going to talk about today, um, just the realities of uh, being disabled and being a person of color and being a disabled person of color and seeking health care. And if in the middle of an epidemic, you know, you might have to seek that care on your own and your family members might not be there to to help advocate for you or to speak for you or even just to be there to comfort you. Um, the realities of that. So it was scary. It was scary. And people were dying by 700 people a day were dying at one point. It seems like people have forgotten that, which is so weird to me. <laughs> I think people um, have sort of trusted 
the narrative of like, oh, you know, it's it's out west now or it's Midwest, it's in other parts of the country, we got it under control. Um, and but we we see that the numbers are going up as we speak right now today in New York City. They're talking about potentially closing the public schools again on Monday because the numbers are going back up. So it's all very scary, and I feel like we're we're riding a wave. Yeah, and I'm so sorry for your loss. To the fact that you know there are so many people in grief and aborting, they're really experiencing a lot of trauma right now. You know, I feel like this is going to be, you know, cumulative and it's going to be really scary in the next, you know, few years because there's so much to work through. You know, if we do come out of this, there will be a lot of trauma. Did it need to board? Did it need to take time to process everything? Right. Because I don't think we're there yet. I also think we're going to see a lot of potential long-term health effects associated with COVID-19, even from people who survived, um, that we haven't begun to really think about or plan for yet. Agreed. So today's episode is about healthcare rationing and, you know, for people who don't know what that is, can you describe what's been happening across different states and in particular in New York as so many hospitals and healthcare systems contend with, you know, just huge strains on their resources and workforces? Yeah, so several states around the country have basically rationing policies or or guidelines which describe what they should do or how they should allocate care or decide who gets treatment or care in the event that there is a shortage of resources, be that a shortage of people who can receive care because the hospitals are so overcrowded or a shortage of equipment that people might need in order to receive care like ventilators. Um, Several states around the country have filed OCR complaints, complaints with the, that's the Office of Civil Rights for the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, um, challenging the existence of these guidelines and and rationing plans, many of which say things um, like they rank people's ability to receive health care according to something called um, a SOFA score that stands for a Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score, which subtracts points based on um, the function of certain key organs. Um, Basically, those numbers determine whether or not uh, the hospital thinks you should be allowed to receive care in the event there's a shortage of resources. Um, So several administrative complaints have been filed about these sorts of policies. Uh, with the Federal Office of Civil Rights from the Department of Health and Human Services. Several states have actually made some changes to their policies as a result. They've included language um, explicitly saying, we won't take your ventilator or we won't discriminate against you on the basis of disability or including language that um, is, is intended to 
include more of a reasonable accommodation framework as opposed to the strictly point-based framework that I described. Some states um, have not resolved those OCR complaints, um, including New York, which is why my office, um, the National Center for Law and Economic Justice and Disability Rights New York have filed a lawsuit. You know, I was really interested with you first told me about the development of this case, and uh, I'd love to hear more about kind of the origins and behind the scenes work, because I know that you were really one of the key people that made this case possible. Sure. Um, so the complaints that I mentioned, the administrative complaints that, that many different disability rights organizations have filed with the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Health and Human Services are administrative complaints. So what that means legally is basically the government of that state can choose to negotiate with the with the party that filed the administrative complaint and they could sit down and agree to change their policies language, for example. Um, that happened in Alabama. It happened in Tennessee, it happened in Pennsylvania. I, th- I believe there might be one more state where it's also happened. New York was also one of those states um, that filed an, an OCR complaint over their ventilator allocation guidelines. Um, Disability Rights New York, who's actually our co-counsel on the case, uh, filed such an OCR complaint in New York. They filed um, a complaint over the New York State Department of Health ventilator allocation guidelines. The talks basically stalled. They didn't come to any sort of resolution about changing the guidelines. And so uh, we decided to to file a lawsuit um, because basically the sorts of plans were making people afraid to seek health care in the middle of, of a pandemic. Um, specifically, Disability Rights New York was getting calls and complaints and concerns from personal ventilator users who were afraid of the possibility of having their vents taken from them um, and given to people who were deemed more likely to survive based on some language in the guidelines and based on uh, the SOFA score that I mentioned. So there was a lot of fear in the disability community. Uh, People had heard about the guidelines on social media, in their friend groups, what have you. Um, And, you know, ventilators were the key item of the pandemic. I think people sort of have sort of forgotten every day on the news you heard about ventilators, 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 how important ventilators were and how we might have a shortage. They were bringing in uh, or trying to bring in ventilators from other places and they were doing all this planning for a potential shortage. And so we specifically filed a lawsuit challenging the New York State Department of Health ventilator allocation guidelines. Specifically, we challenged the portion of the guidelines that contemplates reallocating the personal ventilators of chronic ventilator users who come into a hospital to seek acute medical care during the time of triage. So that means the guidelines say that if you're a personal vent user and you go to the hospital during COVID, for example, and there's a shortage of ventilator and you, based on your underlying conditions or whatever, the function of your lungs, for example, um, have a um, a worse SOFA score than someone else, then theoretically, if they needed your ventilator, it could be reallocated to someone who is determined to have a higher 
likelihood of survival based on their social score. Um, and so we sued specifically over that policy, the ventilator reallocation um, contemplation piece. And that's what we're challenging. Um, the case is called Not Dead Yet v. Cuomo. What is the goal? In terms of the case, in terms of what you want to see changed? We would like to have uh, the state amend the guidelines to ensure that people's personal ventilators would not be reallocated. We want that language changed because we believe it discriminates against people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And as a lawyer for this case, uh, what are some of the challenges to building this case and you know, putting everything together because I love to hear kind of the behind the scenes work because really this took a lot of preparation, did research and outreach. So what was it like just working on this case? One of the biggest challenges was how we were going to challenge the policy itself because technically New York State has not had to ration ventilators yet. Um, and so I should I should make clear that our lawsuit is challenging the policy itself as being discriminatory against people with disabilities. We're not saying that the state has taken people's ventilators, but we're saying that the policy that says that they can and that directs hospitals to do so um, based on that criteria is in itself discriminatory. So that was a challenge. Challenging the policy on its face as opposed to challenging the actual taking away of someone's ventilator. Um, I think particularly for me and, and also for, for the whole team working on the case, we wanted to make sure that the experiences of people people of color with disabilities uh, were represented. Um, that has been difficult. I did a lot of deliberate outreach um, among ventilator users to try to also find people of color with disabilities because we know that uh, we have unique experiences as people of color with disabilities and, and particularly in the healthcare system. But so there was a lot of outreach that we did to try to make sure our plaintiffs were representative of the community as representative of the community as we could. Um, and just a lot of hearing people's stories um, and figuring out how to um, get the message across that these policies are dangerous and these policies are discriminatory. And I think getting people to care about the the horror of these policies um, is, is just generally difficult. Yeah, I think that, you know, even if, let's say, supposedly that this has it, actually happened yet, the fact that this policy exists, that it stands, is a form of violence. Exactly. And it's also eugenics. You know, this is what I think some people don't understand is, you know, when people, disabled people, are kind of raising the alarms, you know, what response I sometimes get 
is, you know, oh, don't, you're just overreacting. You won't happen to you. You know, and I feel like, wow, you know, you really don't get it because this is about our institutions and our policies. And, you know, we're making very explicit that it could happen. Right. And without changes, individuals have no way of defending themselves. Let's say they are in the ICU and they are uh, being discriminated against. They have very little, you know, recourse or just, you know, ways to respond because of these existing guidelines. And I think that's, you know, the danger and the fear. Did I speak as somebody who uses the non-invasive form of ventilation? Is absolutely real, you know, and I just, I get so annoyed by people who are just like, oh, just, you know, these things have been on the books. You know, this is not unusual. Sometimes you have to make hard choices. And I'm like, wow. That's easy to say when you're not the hard choice, right? That has to be decided upon, uh, quote unquote. It's really surprising how. People are just slowly acknowledging medical racism and ableism, which I think is so bizarre and so overdue. Exactly. And I think, you know, we have, or we at least are starting to see real concerns about that happening. Um, you know, we see the story of what happened in Texas. Um, I know they're there. There's ongoing investigations about that, but, you know, Michael Hickson and whether or not he was denied potentially life-saving care because the, the doctors thought, you know, well, it wouldn't improve his quality of life. It's not it's not worth trying it out on him uh, because they already perceived him as having a low quality of life. Um, we know that, you know, Utah not too long ago was talking about it might have to start rationing care soon. We know the hospitals in rural communities don't have the same capacity and the same facilities, and these numbers are going up. So if you have these policies in place that say this is what you should do in an emergency, this is what you should do if you don't have the resources, then who are we to think that hospitals are not going to follow these policies because those are the policies that are in place? That's the whole point of our of our advocacy is um, to challenge these policies itself because, in theory, po- policies are what become what become what we're actually experiencing. It's not just a theoretical thing. You, you put the policy in place for for a reason. So here's a question that is more speculative. Why do you think New York has been so slow or not even responsive, especially to the previous administrative complaint? Because, you know, other states have changed their policies. Do you have any, I guess, completely personal opinions? why this hasn't been changed yet? It's hard to say. Honestly, as of the time of this recording, the state, our defendants um, are moving to dismiss the complaint. Um, That's 
when you file a lawsuit um, in response, one of two things usually happens from the defendant. They file what's called an answer, uh, which usually begins uh, the lawsuit process, or or you can come to the table and sort of talk about ways to, to settle the lawsuit, um, or you file a motion to dismiss. As of right now, the state is choosing to move to dismiss our complaint. And um, we really hoped that in filing the, the lawsuit, they would realize, oh, okay, you know, this is a horrible policy. We don't really mean that. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out how we can change this language. That's what we were hoping for. That's what we expected. So the fact that instead the state is choosing to fight this is really concerning to me. Um, And they're also, at least as of right now, not denying that that's what the policy contemplates, that that it contemplates reallocating people's personal ventilators. So um, it's difficult to say. Um, and you would also think that as much praise as the state has garnered for its response to COVID um, when it was at its peak a few months back, and, and even as even though the numbers are now rising, as much praise as it garnered for its initial response, it would want to continue um, getting good praise, you would think. So um I would hope that people with disabilities would be included in in how it wants to be perceived in terms of handling COVID well. But as of right now, they're choosing to fight. Yeah, it's at least to be, to ask you if uh, people who are listening who are residents of New York State, if they want to support this case or support the merits of this case, what do they do as individuals? Is, is there anything that would be helpful in terms of advocating for this case? I think we just really need to get the word out about these policies, um, about the guidelines, about the fact that they're discriminatory, how horrible they are. Um, and we hope that, that that word and people understanding that vet users and people with disabilities are afraid to seek medical care and that these these guidelines have a real impact on people. Um, we hope that that can help create the change that we want to see. For people who want to learn more about the case and also to follow the updates about the case, where should they go? Uh, you can visit our uh, my organization's website, uh, the National Center for Law and Economic Justice, our website is NCLEJ, that's N as in Nancy, C as in Cat, L as in Lisa, E as in Egg, J as in Jam.org. Or you can go to our co-counsel's website, Disability Rights New York. You know, I want to add up. Uh our conversation with uh, just to more of a personal question for you because you know as a disabled lawyer these issues must be close to your heart and you know you've also suffered losses due to COVID uh, how does this kind of to be affected so personally especially as a disabled person uh how does it shape your work, your approach to work? It's an integral part of it. 
I say all the time that this is why I did this work. The body that I was born into, being a Black disabled woman, is what makes me an advocate. It's why I'm an advocate. So for me, there is sort of no separating these issues. Um, I am proud to represent the the disability community and to hopefully shed light on these issues. Um, It's also difficult because, you know, it's hard to litigate ableism, you know what I mean? And I think sort of trying to figure out how to create change that way while also experiencing things and, and going through it personally myself is difficult, but it also reminds me why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, one of our one of our plaintiffs when we were initially interviewing them and talking to them was explaining something to me and I said to them, Oh, you know, um I I'm I'm disabled too and they said, Oh my God, awesome <laughs> and that to me was a big reminder of of the importance of my doing this work. Yeah, and I think uh as a final kind of to, to wrap this up, are there some folks that you've worked with on this case that you want to give a shout out to? Sure, absolutely. Um, the whole team, the entire team at NCLEJ, um, particularly uh, uh, my colleague Amy, who has we've basically tag teamed this entire case um, and getting it done, getting it off the ground, um, and of course everybody at Disability Rights New York. All of our, our, our plaintiffs, and we have three of our plaintiffs are organizational plaintiffs. Uh, I said the case is called Not Dead Yet. V. Cuomo, Not Dead Yet, the organization, is, is one of our plaintiffs. Also, NMD United, which is a great disability peer-led organization that supports people with neuromuscular disabilities, is a, is a plaintiff as well, as well as uh, Disability Rights New York is the, the protection and advocacy agency for New York. So they're both co-counsel and they're also and organizational plaintiffs. So our plaintiffs as well, the individuals as well as the organizations. Yeah, shout out to them. I think, you know, each case is collaboration and partnership. And it's wonderful that you all are working together to fix something that really should have never existed in the first place. Right. Well, Brittany, I am just uh, so thankful for you and just wishing you and your colleagues all the best. I really do hope that we will get out of this pandemic together and hopefully states will recognize the harm that they've caused and will recognize their discriminatory policies. Right. I hope so, too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this case. And I prefer that your article, your article in Vox about being a vent user and your experiences and fears during this pandemic was a big source of uh, inspiration and help for us in this advocacy. So thank you for all that you do always. Well, I'm just doing my part. And I think, you know, collectively, we're stronger together. So it's we need all kinds of approaches and you know the law is definitely one avenue so I'm so appreciative of that hey there this is the recording of my interview with Brittany she shared with me this update 
the state filed a motion to dismiss the case. Tim, Brittany, and her colleagues are preparing to file an opposition brief in January 2021. This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project, an online community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media culture. All episodes, including text transcripts, are available at disabilitydivisibilityproject.com slash podcast. You can also find out more about Brittany on my website. The audio producer for this episode is Cheryl Green. The introduction by Latif Patron. The music by Wilder Sports Camp. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or Google Podcasts. You can also support our podcast for a dollar a month or more by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dvp thanks for listening and see you on the internet bye rocket to the blast off stop drop dance off